This has been a very unusual Easter season for, for my family. Um, my, my father passed away on uh, Wednesday of Holy Week, and, uh, and his passing causes us to think in different ways about the events of Holy Week than we have in the past. Uh, Good Friday, the lament of Good Friday isn't abstract. It's really concrete when you experience something like this, and certainly the hope of Easter rings in a brand new and fresh way. Well, for... For many people in many churches, uh, Easter is the ultimate celebration. It's a big deal to us in the way that we think about our Christian faith. But it's also a big deal generally, isn't it? I mean, it's a big deal organizationally for churches. You do not speak to pastors on the week following Easter. They're all either on vacation or in a coma or something. but a lot of work goes into all of that. It goes, a lot of work goes into the services. It goes into the activities of, of Holy Week. And uh, once it's concluded, we do sort of just, you know, slide into summer so we can all catch our breath. But there's another sense in which Easter, that ultimate celebration, is really penultimate. That is to say, it's, it's the thing before the last thing. Because Pentecost is coming right around the corner. And in our gospel text this morning, there was a little bit of this penultimate, ultimate business going on. The disciples knew about the empty tomb. Uh, They had heard Mary Magdalene's story about encountering the risen Jesus, but they themselves had not seen him until right now in this story that we heard this morning. They were all locked up together, hiding in in fearful seclusion, concerned that the, the Jewish leaders would track them down and condemn them to the same fate as Jesus. And perhaps they were even isolating themselves with a sense of shame because they had, in effect, deserted him. You know, sometimes when I think about these things, I I, I try to get my mind around what these people were actually experiencing. You can only use imagination for it. In short order, they'd gone from seeing Jesus suffer and die to the wonder of the empty tomb, and now to hiding in fear and shame. And maybe it was like what people go through when when their house burns down and they lose everything, and a day or so later they're living in some shelter trying to make sense of their lives and trying to think of what they're going to do next. And regardless of the comparison, the, the disciples' minds in that scene must have been spinning. And into that shared inner turmoil... Jesus appears among them, greeting them with peace. You know, there could be something really aggravating about hearing a person wish you well or telling you to look for the silver lining in the cloud or or even speaking about peace when the very last thing you are actually experiencing is peace. And granted, peace be with you may have been a common greeting in the day, but it still spoke a word into a setting that was anything but peaceful. But... It wasn't that peace came upon the disciples just because the word was spoken to them. I mean, anyone could have just blurted out peace and uh, and hope that everybody would just finally relax and settle down a little bit. Uh, See, a, a word spoken could bring hope, but it doesn't necessarily create peace. Peace for them came because of presence, the presence of Jesus who had been dead but was now alive and standing among them. Have you ever, honestly, just stopped to consider what a wild story this really is? 
For some critics, it causes sort of a you know, rolling of the eyes, like, come on now, the, the, such a thing could never really happen. It's got to be a metaphor, a metaphor for what the people were actually feeling in their hearts about Jesus rather than him walking through a wall like a ghost and then being alive again. And now, never mind, of course, that the, the disciples were actually terrified that they might be strung up by the Roman authorities anytime soon. Feeling warm and cozy about the memory of Jesus probably was not their shared emotion at that time. And I wonder if our gospel writer, John, sort of anticipated this type of skepticism and made sure to include this incident with Thomas. See, Thomas speaks for all of us who have never seen anything like what the disciples saw on that day. Even in Israel 2,000 years ago, people were not necessarily quick to believe a story about a ghost or a resurrected rabbi. So Thomas doesn't buy the story about Jesus even though all of his friends assure him that not only is the tomb empty, but also that Jesus had returned and stood among them. And in this appearance, the disciples who were present would have understood that the world they had known was gone. Truly a new world had been born. But for Thomas, the old world was still intact. But a week later, Jesus shows up again. Apparently, just for Thomas's benefit. And, and Jesus invites him to, to place his hands in the wounds on his body, giving evidence of the real physicality of Jesus. Now, we don't know if Thomas actually did it, because the text doesn't say whether he actually accepted the invitation or not. But we do know that seeing Jesus resulted in him offering to the world one of the most important statements of faith in the entire Bible when he looks at Jesus and says, my Lord and my God. Well, Thomas stands in the gap of faith for all of us, really. Thomas lived within the tension of his friend's very insistent testimonies and his own skepticism, even though his desire probably was to believe what they told him. The, the tragic story of Jesus surfing in death was now being given a very happy turn, and it was such a good story. But Thomas had seen too much. He had experienced too much to accept this new development without seeing Jesus for himself. I relate to Thomas, and some of you probably do too. It's easy for me when I hear about something sensational happening, even if I like the story that I've heard, I, I want to see some concrete evidence about it. Someone tells me that a room full of people got prayed for and got healed. I want to see them for myself. I want to know that it really happened, you know? I mean, I, want, I might want the story to be true, but wanting it just doesn't make it so. You know, if I thought that I would ever plant a church again, Lord have mercy on my soul. I would name it St. Thomas something, St. Thomas Church. And I would invite all of my skeptical friends to show up and hang out with me. And I would imagine that during my sermons, instead of the occasional amen or hallelujah, they'd kind of go, you know, I don't know about that. You know, how do you know that's really true? That could create an interesting worship service. I mean, people do that after the sermon anyway. They may as well do it during the sermon. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm grateful about the way that Jesus met Thomas in his place of doubt. He didn't scold him. He didn't condemn him for not accepting his friend's reports. Instead, he gave Thomas what he needed. He gave him his presence. 
You know, sometimes I hear people talk about religious faith as nothing more than ascribing to a set of propositional statements that give a person membership in a religious society of some kind. And so if a person converts from one religion to another religion, all they're really doing is just swapping out their rule books about ultimate reality. But it's a challenge for people like us to explain to someone that while our statements of faith do have value, they don't stand up without the presence of Jesus. There is truly an experiential reality to our faith. And and throughout the history of the church, people have used words to give language to what had been experienced, to what was being experienced, in, in regard to the reconciling work of God in and through Jesus Christ. The words of Scripture that we have today come to us as testimony from those who have seen and have heard and have touched. But we haven't, have we? We haven't seen or heard or touched in the way that they did. We're, we're not even given the benefit granted to Thomas, a, a latecomer to the tangible evidences of faith. But I'm grateful that Jesus anticipates us when he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. See, we are among those who throughout the ages have not seen and yet have come to faith in Jesus Christ. But without the kind of tangible evidence that the disciples were given, how does that really work for us? I mentioned my father in opening up. He was was 95 years old when he left us last week. He was pushing to 100. He he thought he was going to make that. He never quite accepted that he was old, you know, which is good. That's good DNA to be a part of. And he'd been very active and vibrant right up to about the last month before he passed. He drove himself to church each week, sang in a choir. He drove a uh, Honda Accord LX with leather interior and a V6 engine. I said, Dad, why do you need a V6 engine in a Honda Accord? He said, I like a fast car. (laughs) He really did. Had he lived, he'd have been singing in the choir on Easter Sunday. That's what he loved to do. And, uh, and just a few months ago, he and I were talking, and I, I said, Dad, how was it that we actually became a, a Christian family, a church family? Because we were, didn't start out that way. We started attending church regularly in the summer of 1964 when I turned 13. Don't do the math on that and don't tweet it. It was a medium-sized church. It was grounded firmly in the old holiness tradition. My dad said, bunch of holy rollers. I don't want anything to do with them. These were people completely foreign to my dad's nominal Roman Catholic upbringing. And my mother, having been raised in that holiness tradition, found the transition a little bit easier to make. But dad told me that the reason we stayed, I always thought it was because of my mother. He said, no, we stayed because of you and your younger brother. You liked it. You found home and fellowship and friends and a future wife for me. But dad said he still felt like an outsider. This church was strange to him and and had this strong commitment to a rather rigorously restricted religious lifestyle. And back in those days, the denomination was very big on not doing a whole lot of things that dad preferred to do, like smoking and drinking and dancing. And in church services, people called out things like amen and glory. You know, never, I don't know about that. He recalled a, a, a congregational meeting right after we started attending, where the topic was the calling of a new pastor. And they did this every few years. And some of the people expressed their concern about the pastor's youth and uh, his uh, lack of closely cropped hair, prompting one congregant to shout out, he looks like Elvis Presley. 
I mean, it was 1964. It's a good thing they hadn't discovered the Beatles yet. Well, Dad said he felt like he was just on another planet populated by these legalistic crazy people. But then something happened that changed my dad's perceptions. The meeting was being facilitated by a, a denominational leader who was the equivalent of a bishop in that family. And the man settled the group down, stood before them and spoke to them. And, and dad said that the man was reasoned, he was intelligent, he offered a, a perspective that was grounded in wisdom and reflection. And when the man finished speaking, dad said, I knew that I could be a part of this if that man up there represented the true heart of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. He said, I can do that. Well, the church did indeed vote to call that young Harry pastor, and through his ministry, my dad came to faith in Christ. Well, dad had heard the testimonies of the people over the months we'd been at the church, but for him, they were just the, the rantings of people who had perhaps lost their bearings on reality as far as he was concerned. They'd made their own claims about Jesus, but he wasn't going to buy in unless he could see something for himself that was real and true. And that was given to my dad through that leader who spoke on that day. The, the man's words and demeanor were offered in the place of the wounds in Jesus' hands and side. And dad became a man of belief, a man of faith, and through believing, he had life in Jesus' name. Well, I've been thinking a lot about this over the last few days, about, about the way that we come to faith. And I believe that it is truly the ultimate presence of Christ in the Holy Spirit that draws us to himself. But there is usually something before that. There is a penultimate presence of faithful people who demonstrate the reality of Jesus through their own lives, through love and care, through language and wisdom. And I'm pretty sure we have all had people like that in our lives, people who gave us the gift of faithful witness to the reality of Jesus. And we are called to be those kinds of people to others. You know, that little church back then, with all of its peculiarities, taught us what it meant to be a community of faith. And to this day, I, I believe that my family was saved because of the new life we found among those good people. They were the penultimate faithful witness to the ultimate love of God. Now, for the disciples, that faithful witness was Jesus himself. He showed them the face of God in new and gracious and loving ways. He helped them to learn about participating in what God was doing in the world, learning firsthand about God's intentions for the whole of creation when indeed a new world would be born. And in our gospel text this morning, we're told that he breathed on them, giving them the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, this too was a penultimate act. We know that because nothing happens right away. That might be some comfort to those of us who have prayed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, only to find that immediately nothing happens. But it is a penultimate gift. The breathing gift would find ultimate expression on the day of Pentecost, when the breath of Jesus, a, a reenactment of God's breath that created all things, empowered the breath in the disciples' lungs to shout out words of praise declaring God's mighty works in the language of the gathered pilgrims on that day. I still find it helpful that nothing happened in that moment when Jesus breathed on them. 
The very Spirit of God took up permanent residence in their lives, and they would soon be transformed from a fearful band of refugees to a fearless gang of preachers who would give everything they had, including their lives, in faithfulness to the God and Father of Jesus Christ. Breath would become words until there was no breath remaining in them. The very end of the Bible, in the New Testament book of Revelation, God refers to himself as the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. And Alpha and Omega, of course, are the first and last letters of the, of the Greek alphabet, the A to Z of the common language of the day, the language that bound the people of the Roman Empire together. And rather than choosing to talk about God's self as with numbers, like zero to infinity, which would totally work, instead God characterizes himself within the boundaries of human language. And while Alpha and Omega represent the God who is at the beginning of all things and will bring all things to their desired end, they also show how God reveals himself to us in our own beginning and end. He speaks to us within the boundaries of human language. It's in Jesus that God takes on the beginning and end of human life and transforms that end into a new beginning, a new world in the resurrection. I'm glad that Jesus revealed himself within the boundaries of Thomas's skepticism. Just as God has revealed himself to us within our boundaries of sight, hearing, language, and relationships. There is so much that is penultimate to us, so much that comes before what God has in store in the ultimacy of the new heaven and the new earth. And in the boundaries of our lives, he breathes on us. The breath of his spirit resides within us. And along with our friend Thomas, we are empowered to declare, my Lord and my God. Amen.